This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Today, we reveal the top 25 films of our best of the decade list. If you haven't already checked out part one, please make sure you do so first. I wouldn't want you to be lost or anything. To reiterate myself a bit from the last show, we are counting down the 50 best films of the 2010s. This is ContraZoom's biggest project ever, and we hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as I'm putting it all together. It started last year around this time as I began putting together my best of 2018 list, and remember that 2019 would be the end of a decade and I should do something much bigger than normal. The list you're about to hear is one done by a committee of 15 different people, and it reflects a more concise list of what was great. Over the course of the show, I'll also be sharing some fun facts about the list. Off the top of the show, I want to thank the people who you'll be hearing from, including Sammy Felchenfeld, Stephanie Pryor, Curtis Sindri, Sebastian Hines, Dasha Paragadova, Colin Mercer, Gemma Mastriani, Harper Thompson of the Hawkeyes podcast, Callum McNabb of Scare Traducing, and Cade and Harrison from The Basement Binge. Special thanks to some people that won't be appearing on the show, including Tal Gottfried, Maxine Grossman, and Carly Smale. I won't take up any more time, so without further ado, let's get into this list. Coming in at number 25 is A Ghost Story from 2017, directed by David Lowry. A Ghost Story might be the most underseen movie on this whole list. Sure, it stars Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck, but it isn't a big Hollywood film. Casey Affleck stars as a man named C, who dies in a car accident right outside of his home. When his dead body is under a sheet in the hospital morgue, he simply gets up and the sheet stays on him, making him look like a terrible Halloween costume he made as a toddler. He walks back to his house, where his wife, M still lives, and he simply just watches her. He watches as she processes grief of losing her husband, and she eats an entire pie whilst crying in a single unbroken take. He watches as she moves out of their home, and a new family moves in. He watches as some drifters eventually move into the house. He watches until time has no meaning and keeps on watching. Director David Lowry shot the film in an aspect ratio that is almost square, with a vintage-looking board around the edges, making the audience pay attention to the details being employed. This movie isn't a horror movie, but the idea of thinking about the infiniteness of death and time tricks your brain into being terrified. Coming in at number 24 is Dunkirk from 2017, directed by Christopher Nolan. Colin Mercer is going to tell us about why this movie is so great. Coming in at number 24 is Dunkirk, the epic World War II masterpiece written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The film follows three different narratives, one set at land, which takes place over one week, where you see hundreds of thousands of British and French soldiers as they wait for boats to come from Britain to evacuate them from Dunkirk on the uh, north shore of France. The second part of the film is told at sea, and it takes place over a day, where you follow the story of a father and his son as they are sailing to Dunkirk from the southern shore of Britain in order to save as many soldiers as they can. And the third part takes place over one hour, which is in the air, as you see a pilot who is running out of fuel, and he tries to protect the hundreds of thousands of soldiers who are on the beach. The story is incredible, mostly because it is true, but the storytelling is stunning. 
Coming in at number 23 is The Florida Project from 2017, directed by Sean Baker. Callum McNabb of Scared Reducing is going to talk about this movie. I can barely put into words just how much The Florida Project affected me and continues to affect me each and every time I watch it. Sean Baker gifted the world with something that is at once romantically nostalgic, hopelessly heartbreaking, monumentally political, and tremendously beautiful. Every character is on point, every emotion deserved. The Florida Project is a slice of life on screen that nobody should go without experiencing at least once. Coming in at number 22 is Gravity from 2013, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Sammy Felchenfeld is going to talk all about it. In my mind, Gravity is definitely a masterpiece, um, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, and he had a hand in a lot of the technical aspects. There's a reason why it won so many Academy Awards that year. Um, and it really is a beautiful film. It's it's incredibly anxiety-inducing. It's just a really well-made movie. But what's really interesting about it is that it's one of those movies, like quite a few on this list, that is best seen in cinemas, which really is the purpose of a lot of movies as well. Um, I can still remember that the anxiety and the nervousness of seeing everything happen on, on the screen. And I think that the ending, some people disagree, but I think the ending is perfect. You see what you see. I'm not going to give it away if you haven't seen it. Um, so definitely a great movie. Coming in at number 21 is Black Swan from 2010, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Coming out of the Star Wars prequels, Natalie Portman didn't look like a very serious actor. Before, she had been in films like Closer and Garden State, but after it took her several years to refine her footing. She was given a very meaty lead role in Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, a psychosexual horror film that delves deep into the mind of a ballerina who strives for perfection past the breaking point of no return. There are moments of the film where you question your own sanity, wondering if everything is just an allegory for mental health. Or is Portman's Nina really growing feathers like we see in something like The Fly? The dance sequences are so integral to this film, as is all about chasing perfection and nothing less than seeing the grueling training they put their bodies through would suffice. Luckily, Portman spent over a year in preparation to pull off the final beautiful and tragic performance of Swan Lake to tie everything together. Coming in at number 20 is Toy Story 3 from 2010, directed by Lee Unkridge. Gemma Mastriani, take it away. Toy Story 3. Okay, so um, I'm probably a little bit biased because the Toy Story series is my favorite in the entire Disney collection. But with that being said, this was a really great movie, not only from a marketing standpoint, because, you know, this was not only appealing to young children, but... um, People like myself who were, uh, I think I was in high school at the time, but, you know, we were waiting for this since we were young because it had been around 10 years since we had seen anything. Um, and then to our parents, the people who took us to the movies who, you know, they probably liked it too, whether they want to admit that or not. <laughs> but anywho, um, there was definitely an increase in quality as from uh, in comparison to the other films before but not so much to the point where it didn't feel original it was just it was just better and the the movie was just action-packed as well um you know to this day it it still gets me uh crying that's for sure when they're holding hands on the rock i just can't it's just it's a lot but yeah definitely one of my favorites coming in number 19 is capernaum from 2018 directed by nadine lapka stephanie pryor 
let us know what it's all about. Capernaum has probably made the most impact to me that any foreign film or any film really on my life. I think that, you know, when I'm watching foreign films, they always tend to be my favorite. But this one just really touched me. Um, Zayn Al-Rafia's performance was so strong and just makes you think, like, wow, little young kids can really, you know, hold their own. They can be great actors as well. You just felt every emotion that went through this character's life and the reasonings behind all his decision-making processes. And it was just amazing to watch. And even though the subject matter is so heavy and it's so hard to get through, just the ending makes it all worth it. This film is so important. I think it shows the idea that, you know, it, it, it turns the idea of adults are the adults, children are children on its head because you see adults acting badly and adults being untrustworthy. And this young boy who is doing everything he can to be you know, the adult in every situation he's in, whether that's keeping his sister safe or babysitting a stranger's child or just getting through the days to make it to the next one. Um, It's so strong and it's so important. And I think it's a great film that I wish more people have seen and would go and watch. I really highly recommend it. I know that it was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is, but if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Coming in number 18 is Gone Girl from 2014, directed by David Fincher. Curtis Sindri, the boss over at Aztec Magazine, take it away. So Gone Girl, I actually watched this recently, rewatched it recently, and it still has the same impact that it had the first time I saw it. It's a story that is a really kind of twisting kind of fucked up mystery that like where Nick Dunn played by Affleck becomes the prime suspect in in the disappearance of his wife and it goes to this whole sort of almost torturous kind of experience where his wife played by uh, Rosamund Pike just kind of like plays him like a fiddle it's supremely well acted I would say is one of Ben Affleck's best roles in a really really long time but it's just one of those things where like even if you haven't read the book you still get wrapped up into the mystery and you know you get this whole sort of uh look back at their relationship and how they met and how it sort of fell off the rails yeah so overall film is fantastic from start to end it's not really one of those films even at like 149 minutes uh, it's not one of those films that sort of lags in the middle or anything like that it's you know you're constantly engaged and constantly sort of trying to figure out what the next step is and what the next move is overall it's it's a film that should be included in this list coming in at number 17 is roma from 2018, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Once again, Sammy Felchenfeld, take it away. So we've had Gravity, and now we have Alfonso Cuaron's most recent film, which is Roma. Uh, this is one of my favorite films, not only of the decade, but of all time. 
definitely a hard film to watch, but in a lot of ways you can see the way it was constructed and the way it really tells the story from the perspective of Quran's uh, upbringing, but also just showing this this beautifully visualized world that's a little bit hyper-unrealistic in its own way, um, especially some moments that stick out that are just very bizarre but still stick in my memory as well. Uh, so definitely incredible film. And another film that, uh, even though it's a Netflix release, it's amazing to see uh, in the cinema and on the big screen. Coming in at number 16 is Ensendie from 2010, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Colin Mercer, please talk about this amazing film. Number 16 is the greatest Canadian film ever made, Denis Villeneuve's Incendie. The film follows two twins, brother and sister, as they travel from Montreal to an unnamed Middle Eastern country at the behest of their mother's will. After passing, their mother stipulated that they must find their brother and their father, both of whom they did not know existed or were alive, and give them letters that she has written. The ensuing mystery is haunting, riveting, and so stuffed with revelations, not just about the story and the mystery at hand, but revelations of the human condition and what humans are capable of. It simply is one of the greatest films ever made. When the process started for this project, I was unsure how everything would shake out. Would there be a consensus top film? Is soliciting a wide range of people with very different movie tastes going to mean that there's no difference between a 50th ranked film and a top 5 film? After a few ballots came in, a few films started to rise up. As more came in, others were rising too. And it increasingly became a list of films that multiple people agreed upon, with a bunch of outliers dotting the bottoms of everyone's list. As mentioned on the last episode, 163 films received at least one vote. But looking at what actually made the list, the first five films that were announced only received a single vote, meaning they were either the first or second place film for some people. My number one slot went to The Master, but not a single other person included it. The same goes for I, Tonya, and Paddington 2, as Gemma and Callum were all alone. But the fun stuff begins when you notice the 20 films appeared on two ballots, 14 showed up on three, and then the real consensus began. Five films popped up with four ballots, five more on five, then the cream rose to the top with six out of 15 people putting a single movie on their list. These 11 movies all appear in the top 15 of the countdown, meaning I haven't talked about the first four-vote film. Going even further, the top eight are pretty much unanimous, or as much as you can get when crowdsourcing, with all movies getting four, five, or six votes. Sure, some of them are probably pretty expected to be here, but it was fun seeing so many different people come together. Coming in at number 15 is Hell or High Water from 2017, directed by David McKenzie. Hell or High Water is so much more than a heist movie. It does its best work when being a critique on capitalism, consumerism, and the role large financial institutions play when they prey on the less fortunate. That said, it's also a fantastic heist picture. Chris Pine and Ben Foster star as brothers robbing Midland, Texas banks for only a few thousand dollars at a time in small bills that's not arouse suspicion. Pine's Toby has everything in order until his brother Tanner, who is a loose cannon, does loose cannon things like robbing a bank on his own for much more money and killing two innocent people in order to make a getaway. Jeff Bridges co-stars as the near-retired lawmen on their trails, trying to figure out their motives and predict their next destination. 
Nick Cave and Warren Ellis's score matches the tightly knit story crafted by director David McKenzie and writer Taylor Sheridan. This was my favorite film of 2016, and it still holds up remarkable due to its prescient take on the post-2008 financial crisis as we are about to enter another economic downturn in the coming months. Coming in at number 14 is Call Me By Your Name from 2017, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Timothy Chalamet had a fantastic year in 2017, playing a supporting role in Lady Bird, and then taking center stage in Call Me By Your Name, playing the teenage Elio, who falls in love with the older Oliver, played by Army Hammer. Director Luca Guanino fills the screen with warmth and comfort while shooting in the Italian countryside. Music, art, food, and late-night swimming adventures soak the screen with luxuries. But all that doesn't matter when the passion between Elio and Oliver heats up. Elio doesn't know how to act, especially considering their romance needs to be hidden. He is naive and unsure of himself. Oliver is coy and more grounded, taking time to allow the relationship to unfold naturally. The rawness of emotions is all over this film, and when it concludes with the final Suvi and Steven song, when everything is all said and done, prepare to have a face full of tears. MVP of this film goes to Michael Stuhlbarg, playing the compassionate parent every confused adolescent wished they had growing up. Coming in at number 13 is Avengers Endgame from 2019, directed by Anthony Russo and Joe Russo. Cade from The Basement Binge, the floor is yours. The next movie I want to talk about is Avengers Endgame. This movie comes at number 13 in the decades list, and I really want to say this movie, my experience and and how I watched this movie was a memory to forever be remembered in, in my in my life my a friend of mine rented out a theater and we me and a bunch of my friends and him watched all together and whenever there was a great scene of this massive fight at the very end where captain america says avengers assemble it was just cheers at the entire theater and this was 10 years in the making and changed my life honestly and how i looked at movies and how i looked at big moments in my life of just all this excitement and just I'll never forget about that and that just is worthy to be in the top coming in at number 12 is Ex Machina from 2015 directed by Alex Garland writer Alex Garland got his start writing sci-fi and genre flicks like 28 Days Later Sunshine and Never Let Me Go he then did The Unthinkable and wrote and directed a wholly original science fiction film in Ex Machina a real rarity these days the film is essentially a three-hander with eccentric tech billionaire Nathan, played by Oscar Isaac, whose company selects geeky loser Caleb, played by Domino Gleason, who wins a trip to his boss's secluded futuristic mansion, where he gets to test out the believability of his latest invention, an android Ava, who is played by Alicia Vikander. Things start out normal enough, until we see the power Ava actually possesses. And maybe her existence is worse for humanity than Nathan originally planned. The film truly amps up the terror of technology, but it does feature probably the best dance sequence of the decade. The ending, though, still sends chills to my bones. Coming in at number 11 is La La Land, from 2016, directed by Damien Chazelle. Curtis Sindri, it is yours. La La Land is a film that sort of reignited my interest and appreciation of musicals. Directed by Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. It's 
one of those films that has huge rewatch potential, not only for the sharply written script, but also for its intricate dance numbers and just overall sense of scale. It's it's a film that feels big. It's it's one of those movies that, you know, sort of harkens back to, you know, the classic musicals, you know, Singing in the Rain and American in Paris and things like that, where the scope feels a lot bigger, which only added to the overall, you know, enjoyment of the film. And now on to the top 10. Coming in at number 10 is Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance from 2014, directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. Harper Thompson of Hawkeye's Pod. Please let us know what's so great about Birdman. The third movie I had on my list was Birdman. This movie came out while I was working on my thesis, which was all about self-reflexivity or self-awareness in movie musicals. So for me, Birdman really intersected with a lot of the ideas that I was reading and writing about at the time. Also, I'm obsessed with those long tracking shots through the theater. They're so good. And of course, the cinematography is by Emmanuel Lubezki, who has been a defining figure in cinematography for the last two decades. You really couldn't do a list like this without mentioning a few of his films. Number nine, The Social Network from 2010, directed by David Fincher. Sebastian Hines, please take it away. This is a movie with pitch-perfect structure written by Aaron Sorkin. It makes the movie endlessly rewatchable a decade later, which is not something that most movies can boast. It's a story about unlikable people, friendship, and somehow you want to keep on watching them despite them being so awful. There are excellent performances here by Eisenberg and Garfield, especially uh, Garfield's iconic laptop smash and the you better lawyer up asshole line, which I hope to use at some point in my life. Not sure when. Coming in at number eight is Boyhood from 2014, directed by Richard Linklater. By now, everyone knows the conceit. Director Richard Linklater took 12 years to film Boyhood, getting the cast together every year to write some scenes and film it bit by bit. It allows us to see Eller Coltrane, who plays Mason, grow up like we've never before seen on film. We have Linklater's Before Trilogy that also stars Ethan Hawke, where we spend a lifetime with two characters, but this is different. We see the current technology, popular music and fashion styles all on display. Watching Boyhood is like only getting to see relatives that live across the country on the big holidays. You catch up with the highs and lows of what's going on, you see how their kids have grown a few inches, and you spot a few new gray hairs on the parents. Linklater and the cast created a world where just getting to spend time with them was pleasure enough. The added ruminations about growing up are just icing on the cake. Coming in at number 7 is Blade Runner 2049 from 2017, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Sammy Felchenfeld, I know this is one of your favorites, so please, let's hear all about it. So Blade Runner 2049. Um, looking back, the original Blade Runner is a bit of a slow movie, but it is still really great um, really well-made movie, beautiful world-building. 2049 really built on that for a more modern take. I think it was an astoundingly great sci-fi film. Uh, Denis Villeneuve just did an amazing job. I don't think they could have got anyone better to kind of continue that vision. And really, it's a stepping stone in Denis Villeneuve's ongoing uh, journey towards more sci-fi films. Uh, the biggest thing about 2049 is that it was a really well-picked-out cast. Uh, it, it 
really came together in a good way. It does run a bit long, I agree, um, but some some really great action, some really great set pieces, and all around a great movie. Coming in in number six is Arrival from 2016, also by Denis Villeneuve, and also, once again, Sammy Felchenfeld. Arrival is Denis Villeneuve's masterpiece so far, and I say so far knowing that he still has a long career ahead of him and a lot of great work to come. The biggest thing for me about Arrival, other than being a nearly pitch-perfect science fiction movie, uh, is also one of those extremely rare movies that improves upon the source material. So it was based on Story of Your Life, which was a short story, which was quite short, uh, and Arrival did some excellent work um, through through the, the scripting and through the way it was made to expand upon the story in an excellent way. It is a truly beautiful film. It is an incredible performance from Amy Adams. It really has a few major hits and twists that, if you don't know the story, really pull you in. I think it's just a fantastic film, and it's probably one of my favorite films of all time. I'm often asked with who my favorite actors are, and I'm usually at a loss. Sure, I always enjoy the work of Daniel Day-Lewis, Saoirse Ronan, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Amy Adams, but I don't really seek out their films in a way that I do with directors. They are the real celebrities for me. Tell me that there's a new Paul Thomas Anderson, Asgar Farhadi, Taika Waititi, or Greta Gerwig film? Oh, I'll be there. I thought it would be interesting to profile what directors popped up the most. Six names make up 28% of the entire list, or 14 films. That's not an inconsiderable number. For the most part, the jurors looked at what was a director's magnum opus of the decade and gave them their only vote. David Fincher released three movies this decade, and two of them made the cut in The Social Network and Gone Girl. One-upping him is Alfonso Cuaron, who only made two movies, and both made the cut in Gravity and Roma. Damien Chazelle landed both of his music-related films, Whiplash and La La Land, on the charts. The Russo brothers moved on from Arrested Development and Community to the MCU, and landed both Captain America Winter Soldier and Avengers Endgame on the list. Christopher Nolan is the last two-timer who has both Dunkirk and an as-of-yet unnamed film. But the real winner of the 2010s was none other than Denis Villeneuve, who got a whopping four films, or 8% of the total list represented. The Canadian auteur churned out six films in the last ten years, with only 2013's Enemy being completely shut out. Prisoners landed on Stephanie's ballot, but that wasn't enough to join Sicario at 40, on Sunday at 16, Blade Runner 2049 at 7, or Arrival in the 6th spot. The man has already completed filming a new adaptation of Dune, and according to IMDb, a remake of Cleopatra as well. In 10 years, I wonder how many films he'll score, or will some new artist completely dominate the years to come? Coming in at number 5 is Mad Max Fury Road from 2015, directed by George Miller. Harrison from the Basement Binge? Let's hear all about it. Now, the next film is Mad Max Fury Road in my top five, and this film is incredible. It is a film that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. You just have George Miller kind of creating a love letter to the traditional practical effects of action movies and taking it top-notch and combining great CGI with practical effects to have just incredible VFX throughout the whole film and just make a great chase action movie. Um, but that's not where it ends. It's a, It's a great movie about justice and our fight for justice and right versus wrong and the the power of women and the power of teamwork and the power of groups there's just incredible messages that i do not have enough time to get into but it's amazing to see a filmmaker who is able to portray such a profound message through something so one-dimensional as a great action chase movie with incredible effects um it's just amazing to enjoy with your brain turn on or off 
um, you're going to be blown away every time you watch it. Coming in at number four is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse from 2018, directed by Bob Perichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. Stephanie Pryor, I know you love this one, so please, let's hear about it. Into the Spider-Verse was definitely an interesting movie for me. I was very reluctant to watch it. I had zero interest in seeing it because I just had superhero fatigue. But Into the Spider-Verse is a wildly creative and original take on superhero movies in a world that is just oversaturated with superhero movies. I think it's the first comic book movie that actually looks like a comic book that I thought was amazing. This is why I love comic books. This is why I read them. It's for the art. It's for the storytelling. It's the, it has a very strong visual aesthetic. So I think to see the pointillism and the halftones and the, you know, the use of speech bubbles and the different little visual cues that are peppered throughout this film just really made it interesting. It's, it's super visually and audibly stimulating to watch. It's just a fantastic blend of animation and sound design that keeps you uh, locked in and excites you from the start to the finish. Um, also, just outstanding voice performances. Uh, special little props to Nicolas Cage as Noir Spider-Man. Uh, probably, maybe one of my favorite Nicolas Cage movies. I don't know, but he was so amazing. Uh, also, I'll just watch anything where I can listen to John Mulaney deliver a line, whether whether it's a joke or not. So that was a huge plus for me and probably the only reason why I did eventually sit down to watch this. But I love this movie. I would watch it every night. Uh, I know as soon as I watched it the first time, I wanted to watch it again. So I think it was great for the world of animation and also just for the universe of superhero movies. It was a different take. It was a different point of view and just such a fun watch. Here we are. The final three coming in at number three is Moonlight from 2016, directed by Barry Jenkins. Sammy Felchenfeld, please. Uh, Moonlight is a movie that we haven't even seen since it came out, that, that type of film that really was an encapsulation of, of, uh, of storytelling, of storytelling of things that a lot of people don't often see, of the types of stories that don't make it to the mainstream, and also a representation of people who don't feel represented often on film. Uh, I really do think that it is uh, an incredible movie. I think that it is well-deserving of its praise and its awards, we won't go there. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a movie that I can still go back to and still just really enjoy being a, an original story, a very much a start to finish, an encapsulation of, of, of one man's journey uh, that just it blows me away. Okay, now it's on to number two. Inception from 2010, directed by Christopher Nolan. Dasha Paragadova, this is the first time we're hearing from you this episode, so please do the honors. I'm going to talk about why I love the movie Inception and why I rated it so highly on my list. Number one, in fact, gold medal movie of the last decade. Primary reason, I mean, I should start by saying that in addition to like hitting all the big checkpoints of like production value, great acting, great directing by Christopher Nolan, just all the major check marks, I think there was probably personal reason connected to it above all else. I was a cognitive science and psychology student at the time, and as 
basically a small seminar group of us in my upper years in university were really psyched about this movie coming out and to talk about its themes and what it meant and to really get into it in a really nerdy way. So I just remember there being kind of this academic excitement mixed with um, mixed with kind of popular film excitement that doesn't, those two worlds don't often collide in that way. Um, I also am a huge sucker for a psychological cliffhanger ending with that top spinning. And what does it mean? Is he still in the dream world? Is he back in the real world? How will it end? I, I just think that's, it's really great because it leaves so much room for interpretation and sort of argument and debate. And I think from, it's exactly what you want from art uh, and exactly how you want to walk away, despite I'm sure a lot of people being left unsatisfied. Uh, kind of reminds me of Shutter Island with, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, again, Leonardo DiCaprio saying at the end, you know, is it better to be a monster and kind of acknowledge yourself as a monster or to live in kind of denial and be the fool? And again, you're like, oh, man, he knew all along. So anyway, just from that perspective, uh, hits a lot of check marks. Love the world they create. The world's holding in on themselves. Is it your mind holding it on itself? Is it the actual world that exists? Yeah, it's pretty wild. Great ride. Great last, great movie of the last decade. We are finally here. After 49 previous films, it is time to reveal the number one film of the 2010s. And that is Inside Out from 2015, directed by Pete Docter and Ronnie Del Carmen. Cade from The Basement Binge, you have the supreme honor of talking about why this is the number one movie of the last 10 years. This movie comes to a bit of a surprise from some of my friends, but to me, Inside Out really hit home for me because one, it talks about how as a kid you have, you're in your own little world and sometimes the world is against you, even your parents and the experiences you have as a kid the imaginary friends that you have as a kid the enjoyments the happy memories the sad memories it all makes about who you are and I felt like that as a kid and so that just hit home for me and I think that every kid can really apply this movie and really relate to this in more ways than any anyone can really realize and that it just reminded me that my childhood wasn't just this weird solitary single thing that only me experienced but everyone experienced and i think that's just worthy of being one of the greatest movies of ever, of ever of all time now that the list has been revealed in full you probably are going to start combing through it to complain about what didn't make the cut when clearly it was superior to whatever crap made this list if i had more time more jurors to get free work out of and more patience i totally would have made a top 100 list i could have just made this a four-part series instead of two considering I had to type up most of the show just to ensure I get all the points I wanted to, I doubt that would have been possible. In the last episode, I humble bragged that my ballot was actually 155 movies, but that doesn't include several from this year I probably could have included there, as I made the list way back in the spring before anything of note came out. I do want to highlight a handful of movies that were on my ballot that sadly just didn't get any other votes. Some great foreign language films, including Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty and Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden, that I was disappointed went unnoticed. Only one documentary made the top 15, but I wish The Act of Killing, possibly the best documentary ever made, in my opinion, was shut out. Some high-profile auteur-made films like Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster, and Spike Lee's Black Klansman didn't make the cut. 
Comedies as a whole aren't well represented, but The Death of Stalin, What We Do in the Shadows, and if you want to call it a comedy, The Big Short were all alone. I do also love my fair share of completely under-the-radar picks, and I guess no one else caught up with Columbus, Under the Skin, and First Reformed, while Nightcrawler was just straight-up snubbed. The Last Black Man in San Francisco was the only 2019 film that made my list when I closed the voting period in October, and it's probably the least-known film I've mentioned so far. I can go on and on, but maybe I'll just post my ballot in full online. I also do a yearly best of list that will be posted after the Oscars when I catch up with all the big films of the year, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Well, there you have it. The 50 best films of the last 10 years. Thank you so much for listening to these huge episodes, and I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did making them. I hope the discussion doesn't end here, though. I want to know what your favorite films of the 2010s were. Send me an email at contrazoompod at gmail.com, and I'll read your comments on a future episode. All this wouldn't be possible without the voices you heard on the episodes, so once again, thank you to Curtis Sindri, Stephanie Pryor, Sammy Felchenfeld, Sebastian Hines, Dasha Paragadova, Colin Mercer, and Gemma Mastriani. I also featured guests from other podcasts, so please make sure you check out Callum McNabb from Scare Introducing, a horror movie anthology show, Harper Thompson from Hawkeyes, an Ethan Hawke-themed show, and Caden Harrison from The Basement Binge, where they discuss the most binge-worthy movies. Stephanie Pryor also made the graphics for these special episodes. Can you guess all the hidden references? Lastly, thanks to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. The next episode will be right after the Oscar nominations come out, so stay tuned to our reactions to them. There will be plenty of great Oscar content over the next few months, so make sure you're subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen. Follow the show on all social media platforms, at ContraZoomPod, including Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.